This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Solitary scenes for solo scenarios. Count Dante and the Chicago Dojo Wars. 90s horror essentials. And keeping France Angevin. Gloomier, a night at Hemlock Hall by Atlas Games, is now live on Kickstarter. Gloomier is the standalone storytelling sequel to the award-winning Gloom, with even more doom and gloom. What makes Gloomier, Gloomier? A return to the beloved original setting of Gloom's Hemlock Hall. More secrets, more revelations of the ever-so-gothic Wellington Smythe family. Clear story prompts put the focus on arsenic-drenched storytelling. Gloom fans love the guests and stories mechanics. So what does Gloomier bring you? More guests and stories! Compatible with all core Gloom games! Straight from the fiendish mind of original Gloom designer Keith Baker. Plus, the Gloomsters at Atlas Games are terribly tickled to unveil the Gloom Griefcase! <laughs> A deluxe storage case to store all your Gloom games. Plus, 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 all backers also receive the Gloom Chronicles a campaign-style mini-expansion for use with any core Gloom game. So dare to enter Hemlock Hall and see what delightful disaster awaits! Back Gloomier on Kickstarter now through April 8th. For more info, go to atlas-games.com or follow at Atlas Games on Twitter. The rattle of die, the thump of miniature, the crunch of Dorito, and the benevolent... Oh, it's only one album. It's like an earlier Peter Frampton album. I guess someone just stood it up against a, a box or something. Robin, we're alone. We're alone in the gaming hut. The gaming hut is not a friendly confine. It's it's an existential mirror cell. It's, it's yes. from a really, really cheap uh, Netflix show, but I repeat myself. Right. Well, there's still two of us, but Thank there, there's only one player. Thank God, Robin. That seems unfair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, what we want to look at today is solo games, uh, whether they are the literal solo game of you playing the book and you are playing the player, or with Gumshoe One-to-One, which is the one I have particular experience with, where there is one player character and one GM. Uh, I think we want to look at ways to make that experience uh, work for that setup, and more importantly, to take advantage of what you can do in role-playing with a single lead character of things that you can't do ordinarily in multiplayer role-playing, where there are a number of narrative conventions that are kind of weird, because although certainly there are lots of uh, ensemble TV shows and uh, lots of things about teams of characters uh, solving mysteries or overcoming problems, you know, all of the uh, CWDC shows are like that. There's a lot of crime procedures and so forth about teams, but it's in fact, Uh, much more common to see stories with a a single person who has to uh, rely on their own devices. And there are certain things that happen in narrative that can't normally happen in role-playing when there's a whole team of people. So, for example, the staple of 
uh, a character has been captured or you've got the drop put on you or you're put in a trap or you're just uh, going down alone in a place in a tunnel by yourself is not normally part of role-playing. And when you uh, do, for example, in Gumshoe um, 1 to 1, when people play that, it's they are suddenly like, oh, no, <laughs> I, I'm yeah. by myself. I don't have anybody to ask to help plan. And I don't have another five people behind me if there is something terrible in this basement. And uh, I can get talked into things I would not normally ever get talked into. I don't have backup outside the place. And that is part of what makes that experience. I'm, I'm always in the lead and bringing up the rear. This is the worst. Exactly. And, and in fact, uh, we were talking about uh, with Gumshoe Wonder One how a, a scenario for this that doesn't have a moment of, oh, I'm by myself, isn't really taking full advantage of uh, the medium. And since Gumshoe One to One is available uh, to, uh, first of all, just through an open license, so you can publish it, a Gumshoe One to One thing uh, however you want, absent certain uh, trademarks, or uh, you can publish things through the uh, Gumshoe Community Publishing Project uh, through through DriveThruGh. There is a big market for One to One. People really enjoy it, especially in these days when uh, a life group is hard to wrangle. And so this is an opportunity, I think, to really show off your writing and showcase what you can do by doing a one-to-one -one project. And um, so we want to go into specifics then about how to make sure that, that there's one scene in every scenario that really underlines this. So, uh, Ken, is there a way to think about this uh, systematically or is it just a matter of... Uh, you know, it just naturally arises from the format. I mean, I think that there's n in any sort of scenario design, there's generally not a system. I mean, we've done a, a, as much systematizing as we can with the spines of the gumshoe stories. Uh, I guess uh, Gygax and Arneson did so with the dungeon generator in the back of uh, the old DMG because those were very narratively constrained sorts of stories. But one of the things that one-to-one -one simultaneously opens up is that stories can be a lot bigger and freer because you can have literally any kind of protagonist and set them in any kind of milieu with, with a story that's from a conventional game. Uh, you sort of are, are stuck with, you're a group of spies, you're a group of secret agents, you're a group of uh, space uh, frontiersmen, uh, law guys, whatever it is that, you know, the, is the sort of the standard with a one-to-one -one, and whether it's a formal gumshoe one-to-one -one or a general solo game, you can, in theory, tailor it exactly to what the other person wants to do. So you can run games where someone's a heroic uh, nurse uh, helping out in a battlefield. And if you, you know, have a, a good engine or a good handle on, on running personal drama and, uh, and uh, resource management type questions, that can be just as thrilling and engaging because you only have to thrill and engage one person. So I think that thinking systematically about stuff is less useful than thinking about, again, this is not a for publication question, but thinking about who your player is a for publication. You do have to sort of fall back on these defaults, but then as you say, we have centuries of adventure fiction, which is mostly about one person getting themselves into some sort of mess. And so I would say just be alert either to the corpus of literary tradition you're drawing on or to the wants and needs of the one person that you know you're running for. If you're running for your significant other or your kid or your you know roommate or whatever, because you're trapped alone in a house by some sort of global pandemic, or just because you want to ease them into role-playing and don't want them to have to deal with a bunch of grotty strangers eating all the Doritos. 
right? Right. Uh, one trick that you can steal from one-to-one, even if you're not doing one-to-one per se, and certainly will be encouraged by the format to use if you are doing one-to-one, is the idea that initially, if you are conducting an investigation, you have other people who have other areas of expertise who you can go and talk to, and these are called sources. And they provide not only uh, the opportunity to go and get a piece of information that it's not realistic for your character to have unless they're omnicompetent, like Holmes, right? If you're Mm -hmm. the total lone wolf genius, uh, it would be out of character for you to want to consult anybody. So you're inherently alone, but you're cool with that because everybody else is an idiot. However, the more usual uh, setup would be, uh, you know, the uh, hard-boiled private eye is not an expert in physics, but he knows someone at Caltech who he can go to and uh, and talk to about his uh, science question that he, you know, he's found a scientific paper with blood spatters on it. And he's, he knows what the blood spatters are about. That's in his uh, wheelhouse. But he needs his friend, the professor, to explain uh, the science behind it. And mm-hmm. then uh, that gives the uh, player a chance to interact with someone who is not going to give them a hard time because most interactions in, in a typical investigation or detective story, you are overcoming the resistance of the people who have the information you need. Whereas you have a, a panel of experts who will be friendly to you. They'll be nice. They'll, you know, the GM can describe them, uh, you know, pouring some tea for you or uh, perhaps pouring some whiskey into the tea, depending on what your uh, tastes are. But at some point, as you move away from figuring out what's going on to shifting to what do I do about what's going on? You then have a a part of the story where the character is physically alone, that they can't draw on people to, uh, to back them up and uh, they have to solve the problem in some way, whether there's a barrier preventing them and it can just be a barrier of, of distance, right? That if they have to go out in the Hills to find the UFO or down into the Valley and they wind up, Oh, look, there's a hole. This is where the, whatever it is has been coming out of, oh, no, I have to go down into the hole by myself. And so uh, think about uh, the most obvious way to do this is to uh, structure it so that the uh, character has a a physical space between themselves uh, and others. Are there other kinds of uh, isolation that you can uh, build into the scenario as as the stakes increase? I mean, again, very much depending on the scenario, in addition to physical isolation, which I think is the sort of the no-brainer, the simple one, you can, in fact, create social isolation, it, again, through that sort of interpersonal play. And it can begin with your meeting your sources, and they're all friendly and good. And then you say, well, Professor, I guess I'm going to have to go look into this um, uh, community that's building this uh, death ray that you talked about. And the professor like, oh, I wouldn't do that. And well, why not? I can't, I can't really go. Oh, look, I, it's my office hours. I have to get off and do something else. And as you are demonstrating that you're uh, looking into a case that the community as a whole either fears or doesn't want solved, depending on if you're doing a, a Dracula or a bad day at Blackrock, you can create social isolation in which you're still getting the information, but it's because people are more terrified to be seen talking to you. So they hope that you'll go away or they're like, nope, I can't talk about the church of the death ray. That's, that's uh, above my pay grade or, you know, in other ways, they they express suspicion or or socially isolate you, and 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 you can have that experience driven in that no, in fact, you don't have anyone to go to. Even your sources have dried up, and now you really have to make the decision 
uh, and of course you're going to decide in the, you know, adventure way, because that's the structure of the story, but you're, you have a moment of decision where it's like, I, I like being fed tea and, and talking nice to NPCs and not going into danger. If I just ignored the death ray church, would there be a problem? And maybe they wouldn't shoot me what I like. And so you have, you can have that little existential moment that is, that is key to sort of, um, a lot of even a private detective fiction, the notion that the detective is digging up secrets that uh, rich and powerful people don't want dug up. Right. Uh, so the the most notable thing that uh, often happens in genre when you dig up the wrong secrets is you get framed uh, <laughs> that the, uh, you know, the cops uh, warn you off the case or you literally get charged and are on the run. And so um, you're a fugitive. So you can't check in with your uh, usual sources or get your, um, buddies to back you up and provide you with uh, muscle. Other forms of social isolation, if you're uh, doing sort of mystery solving in in the Jane Austen era, uh, you could be socially disgraced. And so the people who uh, would be willing to talk to you uh, aren't uh, willing to uh, do that in public, at least, right? You might be able to uh, sneak around and and your your very good friends uh, won't admit that they're seeing you in public, but they might do it in private. But other people uh, won't want to contact you, or there's a, a scandal in the media that um, makes you sort of red hot and you have to dodge the paparazzi and uh, avoid being caught on uh, people's uh, in Instagram feeds. Uh, so that might uh, be a, a possibility there, or your special robotic illusion that makes you look like a human instead of a robot who's come to Earth to solve mysteries, you know, that malfunctions, you've only got like an hour a day to look like a human. So there's all sorts of ways that you can, as a, a scenario designer, start to narrow the character's ability to navigate. And the only way through that, the only avenue to undo that encroaching isolation is to solve the case. So uh, if you've been uh, falsely accused of murder, you identify who the murderer is. If you've been socially disgraced, you find out who it is who's been uh, slandering your name, who also happens to be the one behind the, the crime that you're investigating and so on and so forth. So you can kind of look at a solo scenario as one that is kind of a funnel. So at the beginning, you have a lot of options. And as you uh, go through the uh, investigation, you become more and more alone until you solve the mystery. And that breaks your aloneness until perhaps the next mystery, if there is one. And so, and that is the classic way that suspense narratives work is that we think of role-playing games as you always have options. This choice leads you to another three options and this choice leads you to another three options. But if you map out the range of choice that a character has in a narrative, especially a, a solo character, it's about having choices taken away from them, taken away from them until the final events of the story are inevitable. And, uh, and it's that sense of inevitability that you can uh, play with in a, a solo game that, uh, and the player will accept that because it's part of the bargain in a way that a group of players often will not because the players in a group are, are very often there for different reasons and want different stuff. So the, the character wants to hit things, wants a chance to hit things. The one who causes trouble when they get bored, they're going to cause trouble when they get bored. But in a solo setup, it is part of the bargain that the character is alone and will become more alone uh, as the investigation continues. Uh, the flip side of that, though, is you get to play into those beautiful fantasies of being the lone wolf Superman that group games discourage either through rules or through social contract or all of the above, because 
you know, realistically, the five of you with your halberd are not going to break into a facility unobserved. That just isn't going to happen. So most people say, well, fortunately, there's guards to hit with your halberd. That'll solve the problem. But with a solo operator, you can do sort of, you know, cat burglary things. You can do Batman uh, Wolverine type stuff where it's you against a, a sea of bad guys and you get that uh, visceral thrill out of, you know, their viscera. Uh, great fun had by uh, by the player in that. You know, you can feed those single competence storylines. You know, you're the one guy on the street gunning down Frank Miller. Uh, you're the, the solo heroine who has to, you know, penetrate the, uh, uh, the, the, the social set, which you couldn't drag your, your nine buddies into. There's a lot of, of, uh, uh, of individualistic narrative, not just individual narrative that is specifically about what one person can do, uh, that goes, you know, back to Beowulf, uh, and up to Jack Reacher that, you know, it's all about the power of one person basically working alone. And that gives them an ability to move outside the boundaries of society that a group of people can't. So while you're isolating the person, you can also, it's certainly in genres that allow for such things, feed that sense of, well, it's good that I'm the only one who has it because I'm the only one who, who has the freedom to operate on that. I, you know, I can stop crime in Gotham city in a way that the uh, poor police department can't that kind of, it's all on you fantasy by and large. There are very few things you can solve all by yourself that you uh, shouldn't be solving with lots of other people helping you. But in our adventurous fantasy lives, uh, we, we do the opposite. And I think feeding that is another thing that you should think of. If you're building a solo game, do we have a time where, because they, you know, have to corner a guy at the edge of a crag that only one person could walk to, do they have to fight us a mano a mano, you know, uh, 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 you know, kickboxing match in the ring of death. What is the thing that provides you that great solo moment of spotlight, uh, and heroism that we all want to have from watching, you know, uh, Jason Bourne, but, uh, generally don't get in our group RPGs because if you're playing Jason Bourne, someone else is playing uh, whatever the guy is from 24. And so, you know, you're, you, you've got mixed messages and, and bad signal going on. Right. And the, just as in a multiplayer game, the scenario is contrived to allow a group of people to succeed. A solo scenario will be contrived to allow the single player to succeed. And so uh, look not only for ways for them to feel alone, but as you point out, ways for them to be glad that they don't have to convince the paladin that this is ethical or that uh, <laughs> this is a, you know, three people could never sneak in here, but one person can or you know, thank goodness we don't have to come up with cover identities for uh, seven other people. Uh, well, on that note, I think that we have narrowed all of the possibilities of this segment to the point where there's one inevitable outcome, and that is a beautiful, shapely commercial. And on the other side of uh, that very suave and charismatic commercial, we will have yet another segment. Bargain fans rejoice! Gumshoe has once again invaded the bundle of holding. 
with a brand new PDF super deal. Featuring The Fall of Delta Green by Ken. The Guy and Reach by Robin. Time Watch by Kevin Culp. And Larfinder by Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Plus a host of other supplements and goodies. Buy at the ever-escalating mysterious level-up price to snag them all. But wait, Ken and Robin, you might be saying. I already have most or all of these. Due to my rare refinement as a role-playing fan and all-around paragon of humanity. Well, what about your players? Are you tired of them dead-beating around when they could also own all of these fine books? If so, alert them to this must-purchase opportunity. With extreme refinement, of course. Find it at bundleofholding.com. But be warned, this bundle must close on March 29th. The smell of hot dogs and the sound of 60s music uh, blaring out through transistor radios tell us that we're once more in the History Hut. But this time around, it's a History Hut from the uh, latter part of the previous century. And I think uh, because we smelled hot dogs, we know that we are once more in Ken's favorite city, Chicago, because uh, beloved Patreon backer Neil Dalton wants to know about Count Dante and the Chicago Dojo Wars. So after this segment, you can go and uh, dial up Count Dante's rock and roll record on uh, Spotify. It sounds sort of like proto uh, garage punk kind of sound like a, a DOA a little, actually. But he's bragging about his uh, martial arts prowess throughout that uh, record because, Ken, this is a, a, a colorful uh, human being uh, with a long resume and or rap sheet. And it starts when he is born in 1939. Right. He's born John Timothy Keehan. Uh, he's born to uh, an Irish banker in Beverly, which is in the far southwest side of Chicago. And he grows up. He gets into boxing. He's a fighty kid. He, he grows up big. And he joins the Marine Corps Reserves and then the Army. And it is at this point... Uh, he has already trained under the bantamweight champion of the world, Johnny Kulan. He was not admittedly the champion when he was training John Keehan. Uh, because but he, uh, he would have other things to do than train other fighters. He would have other things to do. And indeed, uh, just a little side note on John Kulan. This is one of those stories, by the way, that keeps unfolding like a flower, Robin. Johnny Kulan claimed to have learned the death touch while boxing in Asia, after his uh, Bantamweight career, he would go around and do uh, performances on sort of a vaudeville martial arts boxing circuit. And one of his tricks was he was the unliftable man. He could stand in such a way that no man, no matter how strong, could lift him. And he could bring the most powerful man to his knees with a death touch. And there is a, a great picture of little old frail Bantamweight Johnny Kulin giving the death touch, which looks like the Vulcan nerve pinch to a very much along for the ride, helping out being a sport Muhammad Ali <laughs> in which Ali is like, is, is bent over going, Oh no, the death touch. And it's great. It's a beautiful picture. It warmed my heart. I almost wanted this to be the Johnny Kulin episode, but sadly, yes. Johnny well, Kulin. He must have liked Johnny Kulin to, uh, to play second <laughs> banana to him. That, that's a real tribute there. Right. Well, he was a great figure, apparently. And Muhammad Ali was a terrific guy. And we'll come back into this story because it takes place in the south side of Chicago. Anyway, it is at this point that uh, Johnny Keehan begins to mythologize his past and claims, at least at later time, to have been training under Bruce Lee in Oakland. Uh, he would go back and forth uh, from Chicago to various 
martial arts trainers. Right. And the Bruce Lee thing is not mathematically impossible. It's just unlikely, especially the part where he brags about having beaten up Bruce Lee. Yeah. Anyway, but he was a tough guy. He was a good fighter. He studies under Robert Trias, the guy who taught karate to the army, and a uh, martial artist named Charles Grzanski, who basically, under the guise of enforcing the occupation's no martial arts rules, went to every martial arts master in Japan and said, tell me all your secrets or I'm going to turn you over to the cops, and brought that unique skill of shakedown and grift back to Chicago, where, of course, he became a cop, a guy named Charles Grzanski, and uh, judo legend Matsato Tomura, who also lived in Chicago after having fought the first, uh, one of the first mixed martial arts bouts in uh, American history, anyway, uh, judo versus wrestling in 1943, and Tomura defeated the wrestler despite having only two fingers on one hand. So it was a, it was a big day. Mas Tamura became a, a legend in Chicago's nascent martial arts scene and taught, uh, John Timothy Keehan. Keehan gets his black belt in 1962, opens up his own karate school. He's on the South side and therefore he is teaching a lot of black people karate, which was certainly not a thing in American karate at the time. And, uh, Keehan, say what you want about him, does not pick and choose. He'll teach uh, gangbangers. He'll teach a nation of Islam guys. He'll teach black Panthers. He is friends to any black guy with 50 bucks who wants to learn karate. And, uh, that in 1962 is progress and a half. Uh, he organizes the first U S national full contact karate tournament, which takes place at the university of Chicago in 1963. And of course, being Kian, he calls it the world karate tournament. It is not the World Karate Tournament. I don't think that anyone from outside America comes. And it's not like the World Series either. It's just a bunch of guys having a karate tournament. Uh, by 1964, the karate movement is in full swing in Chicago. There's 13 dojos there. Dante runs two of them. He leaves Robert Trias's U.S. Karate Association in 1964. He says, because Trias was uh, disapproving of his teaching black people, Tria says that's bananas. Like 40% of my students were black, probably just because Kean was a attention hog and a jerk and Trias didn't want to deal with him anymore. And so they parted ways. It is at this point that if there is such a thing as the Chicago Dojo Wars, they probably begin because he attempts to blow out the window of the Judo and Karate Center, a rival dojo with a blasting cap. Uh, is arrested in July of 1965 for that and sentenced to two years probation for attempted arson. It is that brush with the law and escape that I think tells him he's invulnerable. He uh, allegedly studies voodoo with the Gnostic voodoo occultist Michael Bertio, who also operates on the South Side. And in order to keep uh, the money flowing in and in his own words to meet babes, he becomes a hairdresser which is an easy thing to do. Lots of good hours opens up the house of Dante salon. He had some extra points on his character sheet, added some skills. Exactly. And uh, is so good at it that playboy magazine, which at that time is being published in Chicago, calls him in to hairdress the bunnies and the, and the playmates. And so uh, he meets a lot of young ladies who are very impressed by John Timothy Keehan, but are more impressed by count Juan Rafael Dante, which is the name he changes uh, his name too in 1967, deciding that having an Irish banker dad is too bougie. Uh, he decides that his dad was actually a Spanish civil war refugee who fled Franco and that 
He was also uh, fighting with Castro in the Sierra Maestra in 1961. Did I mention that when I was beating up Bruce Lee? I was also fighting for Castro. So, he so becomes- was Count a, a title that he attributed to himself or was it part of his legal name change? There are no records of the actual legal name change, so we don't know. Uh, he certainly pretended to be a count. He uh, took to carrying a lion-headed cane and wearing a cape. Well, that, that, that's I, you're not a count without a lion-headed cane. Well, and he also never one to do things by halves. Gets a pet lion cub and walks it ostentatiously on the lakeshore so that everyone sees him. This is all advertising what he is now calling his Kata Dante system, the Dance of Death system, uh, and he begins to fight in early mixed martial arts tournaments. Uh, what are called kumite or freestyle in which no style is forbidden and all you do is spar. He is allegedly undefeated in all of them. According to other records, he is disqualified from one for biting or something. And it is at this point in 1968 that he writes and publishes the world's deadliest fighting secrets and advertises in comics as the most dangerous man alive. And when you first see those ads in comics, when you are nine or 10, you think, well, he's a vampire. Of course, he's the most dangerous man alive because that's what he looks like with the terrible imagery production. But it's actually him with an afro and a goatee and uh, his hands are not curled in vampiric talons, but in the poison fingers of the dim mock, the death touch, which he claims not to have learned from uh, Johnny Kulon, but uh, from uh, Bruce Lee and also from the Asian masters that he defeated in a... Uh, alleged uh, free-for-all battle uh, somewhere in Thailand or maybe China uh, in which 13 of 14 masters were killed. This is from the ads. He, the only survivor. So he basically was enter the dragon before enter the dragon, uh, which is pretty great. In his quest for publicity, he goes up to Muhammad Ali's door and bangs on it on the south side of Chicago and challenges him to a fight. Ali is at this time forbidden to fight for money by the boxing commission because of his draft resisting. And, uh, also does not want to scrap with this crazy person. So <laughs> there, there's no upside <laughs> when a guy with a lion cane no. uh, knocks on your door and wants to challenge you to no holds lion, uh, <laughs> lion fighting. Combat. Although it, I mean, again, Dante was a big guy. He won a lot of fights. I still think Ali could have took him personally, but anyway, he resigns from the actual tournament ring and goes into exhibition around 1968-1969. By now, the money from all those ads is flowing in. He allegedly made a million dollars on World's Deadliest Fighting Secrets. That seems high, but, you know, whatever. It was five bucks. You do the math. Well, he's been straight with us in all the other details. Right, he yeah, wouldn't exaggerate why, why would this be a lie? And he's running at least four Imperial Academy of Fighting Arts dojo franchises in Chicago. Black Belt Magazine in 1969 uh, blackballs him. Uh, appropriately, because his exhibitions are basically just blood sport. By now, he's given up any pretense of it being a martial art. Uh, this world's deadliest fighting secrets are uh, use any sort of dirty fighting to put the guy in pain, put him on the ground, and then just beat the hell out of him. That's the world's deadliest fighting secret. I've just saved you five dollars, which again works. Yeah. But deadly fighting secret knife. Yeah, deadly. That's a deadly. Well, Stick it we're in coming. Him. We're coming to the even deadlier fighting secret. You've you've foreshadowed uh, the other known skirmish. And again, because he's running these dojos and because he's running with a bunch of gang guys, and then also is selling used cars on the south side of Chicago, which is a big red flag that says he may also be getting 
closer to the mob, um, his guys go around and start fights with other fighters at other dojos. This is partly to drum up business, partly probably as a sort of enforcer move, and partly because he's a guy who likes to wear a, uh, a chartreuse leotard and a cape and walk around dangerous neighborhoods and see if anyone jumps him. And even in 1969, I think you probably could not walk around Chicago in a chartreuse leotard and a cape without someone jumping you. So he would get into fights that way. And his, his legend was nailed in, especially amongst, uh, the, the, the black community in the, in the South side, because he was always cool to them and straight with them, never showed any sign of racial prejudice, which was gigantic. So in all of the other nonsense, we have to remember that he earned the respect he got, at least partially on the South side. But he has beef with the Green Dragon Society. His society is the Black Dragon Society. So you can see that right now it's acid breath versus poison breath. You, you can't you can't make that uh, come out right. Right. Now, Jackie Chan famously complained that so many 70s martial arts movies from Hong Kong were stupid because the entire plot was just one dojo has a beef with another dojo for no reason. But here, 10 years earlier, this is hard-edged realism. This is this is all the motivation you need for people to have a fight. Absolutely. And the the beef is never quite gone into. As some say they beefed over a girl. Some say it was because the uh, leader of the Green Dragon Society disrespected uh, Count Dante by saying something like, he, dress, he wears a cape. Are you serious? Uh, so they go to the Black Cobra Hall, which is where the Green Dragon Society meets. Uh, on April 24th, 1970, Dante flashes a phony detective's badge to get in, and then they throw down. There's a fracas. Dante allegedly dislocates the eye of the sensei of the Black Cobra Hall, but another of uh, the Black Cobra guys grabs a decorative Chinese knife off the wall and stabs one of Dante's students uh, to death. And this gets everyone's attention. He's dragged into court. But fortunately, his lawyer is a guy named Rob Cooley, who also represents the mob. And this is where my seemingly unfair assertion gets a lot more legs under it. So in 1971, because it is a Donnybrook and because Cooley argues that he could not have thought that there would be a knifing at a martial arts dojo, that would be against the laws of karate or something. Basically, all the charges are dismissed against everybody, including the guy who actually knifed Dante's uh, associate. And yeah, there are no knives in a place where there are knives on the wall. No, that, that's that. Why, who would think a stabbing could break out at a, at a martial arts rumble? That would be against genre. He has by now a line in pornographic and occult book selling. Possibly the occult book stuff is connected up to Michael Bertio. Definitely the pornography is connected up to the mob because he's still doing the used car things. And it gets him into a beef with Jimmy the Bomber Katiwara, who runs car theft and chop shops all over the South and Southwest sides. Cooley uh, negotiates Katiwara down from I will kill you to pay me $25,000, which Dante seems to have seen as just an entry fee, like he was going to be a made man now. And allegedly, according to Cooley, Dante helped out with or masterminded, and I question the use of the word mastermind in this context, the Purolator vault robbery in October of 1974, in which unknown criminals got away with $4.3 million. It was a giant scandal. The cops arrested a bunch of members of the Chicago mob, and 
at that moment, as everything is beginning to come out about the Purelater robbery, Count Dante dies of a bleeding ulcer at age 36. And according to certain of his disciples, his insides were rotted out with cancer, just like those of Bruce Lee. And the dim mock had come for Count Dante. And the best, I guess, the, 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 the best coda of this is he was cremated. There is no gravestone. You can't go find Count Dante in a Chicago cemetery. And indeed, it is said that Count Dante faked his death or came back from death and still walks among us. There are sightings of Count Dante in Chicago by guys who used to fight with him on the South Side as late as 2005. So if you're worried, if you feel like you just can't deal with the world, just stand out in the street in your chartreuse leotard and say, Count Dante, come help me, and he will bring you the most deadliest fighting arts alive, um, or uh, you'll be beaten up because you're wearing a chartreuse leotard in Chicago. Yes, and and definitely not a vampire. You don't have to worry. Definitely not a vampire. Coming back from the dead, not a sign of vampirism. Uh, don't worry about that. Definitely not. Did not look at all like a vampire in all ads in all Marvel comic books. And those would be the world's deadliest fighting secrets, be a vampire just going to say. So his heyday is the 60s and then on into the 70s. So that makes him a uh, fall of Delta Green game master character. What is the scenario where Delta Green agents meet Count Dante? Well, I'm going to I'm going to have a hard time keeping him out of the scenario. I'm going to run for my uh, Delta Green group set at the Chicago National Convention in 1968 <laughs> because what that scene needed was Count Dante. Now I understand. It's not just hippies. You need Count Dante. I mean, Count Dante is, of course, connected to a lot of things that law enforcement would like to know more about. You can absolutely have an invisible martial arts society. He calls himself the Black Dragon Society. The Black Dragon was a real Japanese secret society that in the Delta Green universe was also an occult uh, a mythos group. So perhaps uh, when he studies with Michael Bertio, he finds out about the mythos and turns to the mythos. And that's why he changes his name. And that shift happens because he discovers the mythos and it sort of sends him around the corner a little bit into an unreal world. Bertio, of course, we would never say is a mythos figure, despite the fact that Kenneth Grant loves him. Uh, Bertio is a lovely man from the south side of Chicago who I have met and is surely merely a beautiful occultist uh, who the mythos festers around as they do. But that's all you need is, is that lead. And uh, if his black dragon society is calling up the powers of the Loigor or the Azathothic uh, idiot chaos, which, you know, seems to be a, a light motif in his career. I, I feel like that's, that's all you need really. And then all you've got to do is make sure that you put a lot of points into unarmed combat because you'll be fighting some dojo guys. Well, it's time for us to fight the inevitability of time, but we can combat it with the aid of this uh, beautiful commercial message and uh, whatever hut and or segment waits on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through Protect our dojo from the invasion of underfunding alongside such fine Patreon backers as John Rogers, Ross Ireland, Todd W. Olson, Alan Wilkins, and Dave Stecco. The whir of the projector, the stab of the beam across the black space, the not even black, I don't even know what color that stuff is on the floors, uh, in the way of our trip to the center seats on the center aisle where we sit down and get ready to watch more Horror Essentials, 12, volume 12, day 12 of our Horror Essentials Film Fest in the Cinema Hut. And in the Cinema Hut, we are almost into the 1990s, and that means almost into another shift of horror is that right robin right and it's a it's a bit of a downshift so uh the 90s on a a film production level the straight to video market still exists but is beginning to uh sort of fade away as video retailers realize that uh only your hardest hardcore customers want the vast bulk of the straight to video your puppet master sevens and your knockoff uh, erotic thrillers and uh, all of the sort of uh, bottom of the barrel stuff that's the equivalent of prior uh, decades uh, drive-in fare. And the business becomes even more directed toward uh, new releases. And uh, as the sort of funding for video cassettes changes, people are more and more driven to, to the new releases. Blockbuster is becoming a big thing here. They're very new release driven. And so the opportunities to take a few bucks and make your money back on, on a straight-to-video are kind of fading away. And and really nothing here is coming straight out of nowhere. Now we've reached a point in the 90s where there's the occasional horror title and therefore the occasional good horror title. Also, the 90s, politically and socially uh, in most of the world, is a bit of a rest, a lull. There's a peace dividend from the apparent end of the Cold War. The biggest problem in American politics is a sex scandal involving the president. And uh, just a, a single one. Just one sex scandal. Well, you know, it was it was early. They, they, we were getting our legs under us. Yeah, the, the economy's uh, going great guns. And so as the anxiety sphere starts to contract and people are happy and the money is flowing, there are fewer horror movies and there is less of a thread connecting all of them. So we'll get to some titles that uh, hark back to the ironic 80s. Uh, but a lot of these are sort of singular films or films that remind us of other horror trends. And if we get far enough, uh, we might get to a genuine new trend in horror, but we'll, we'll see how far we get. And uh, you wanted to start this with a film from 1988. Yes, The Vanishing uh, by George Sluzier. It's a Dutch film. First of all, fun to say Dutch film. Second of all, it is, it's on that borderline between thriller and horror, but because it is so completely about paranoia and loss. It, it makes an interesting pairing with Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now is about 
sort of the latter part of grief coming back to bite you. And the vanishing is about the first part, the denial, the inability to, to move on or, or deal with it. And indeed our, uh, our protagonist Rex can't deal with it because the person responsible for the titular vanishing, his girlfriend Saskia is still there and still puppet mastering the situation. So we have a, a great, sort of a psycho horror villain. We have a everyman victim. It could have been filmed by Hitchcock if Hitchcock was a lot uh, more emotionally invested in in the films. This is very much a a story about Rex just collapsing and failing in everything. It's a it's an overwhelming emotional experience to watch it. And I will just end my discussion of the of the vanishing by saying do not watch Loser's English language remake. It is terrible. It is like it was remade by a pod creature of, of Sluzer. I don't know if he just didn't care and was doing it for the money or if, you know, he got a new sports car and was super happy. And so he just couldn't channel the, the, the grief and terror that goes into the vanishing the second time. Whatever happened, ignore it. It doesn't exist. It's like the remake of The Haunting. Don't even think about it. Only trust the original 1988 Dutch The Vanishing. It is almost unrelieved emotionally terrifying and, and and present and so even though there's nothing supernatural i think that it is very much about uh that horror that emotional uh void right now ken is describing uh, the film as its adherents describe it. it it does indeed have a big cult reputation when i finally had a chance to see it i have to admit that i was like what's the deal so it, it just didn't uh, work on me at all to the point where I can't even see the film uh, that you were describing. Uh, so if if you uh, if it falls flat for you, uh, that that makes two of us, I guess. Mm. The next film is a, a throwback to the irony of the '80s. It's a fun romp uh, directed by Ron Underwood, and that is Tremors from 1990 with uh, Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward dealing with uh, underground serpents out in uh, what is it Arizona somewhere in the south. Perfection Nevada. Perfection Nevada. And uh, it is uh, just sort of a, a fun evocation of creature feature as if they were much uh, funner and better made than they were uh, in the day. And it's, it was sort of when it came out, it was sort of a, a surprising hoot that uh, came out of nowhere. And uh, if you have uh, someone who uh, likes sort of the, the fantastical monstery side of horror but doesn't want to be terrified, uh, Tremors is a lot of fun for the whole family. It is possibly the most perfect B picture ever made. It is uh, so much fun, such high energy. I I would say terrified, maybe you're not ever, but you are certainly skeert a couple of times. And uh, one of the nice things about Tremors, as is maybe uh, our own leitmotif, is that the characters are all enjoyable, recognizable humans. You recognize them, you empathize with them, you immediately don't want any of them eaten by the sandworms, the graboids, as they are named later on in the franchise. It, it's just, you know, from strength to strength to strength. It's in the, in the same way that Ghostbusters is always amping up the comic stakes while also amping up the horror stakes. Tremors, much the same thing, continuously amping up the uh, survival horror stakes, if you will, while always opening out that more and more of perfection is revealed to you and more and more characters are revealed to you. And it's never a bad reveal. You're never disappointed or upset. It just keeps getting better and better. It's, it's nearly a perfect piece of character, filmmaking you would almost even call it a a screwball horror movie the deafness and lightness of the character portraits are so good it, it spawned six sequels uh none of which are particularly great although i think probably all of them are are worth a watch if you're super bored but it's just a joy to be in that movie and it's endlessly rewatchable 
I think Tremors is, I, I guess I can't say it's undersung because everyone loves it. I mean, even Robin probably loves Tremors, but I, I think that it, it can't, you can't say too much good about it. And well, I guess you can, we could keep talking about it for 13 minutes, but we're not because we're going to go to the opposite of Tremors, except in quality, uh, Jonathan Demi's The Silence of the Lambs. A movie in which no one is good, everyone is awful, with the possible exception of Clarice Starling, played magnificently by Jodie Foster, pitted against the evil weevil, bad Hannibal Lecter, played uh, unforgettably by the great Anthony Hopkins, and it won a clutch of Oscars, briefly made horror fans think that the Oscars loved us, that was a lie, but they were all deserved. I've seen Silence of the Lambs, I think, three times on the big screen, every time it works, every time it kills. The last time was in the Corn Palace Theater in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which I recommend to anyone in Baraboo, Wisconsin, once those restrictions are gone and you can go back to the Corn Palace, try and catch a horror movie in it. It's super great. Uh, it's a great movie on, I think, every level. It just works atmospherically, thematically, soundtrack, the, the whole nine yards. It's it's, a, it's an amazingly good film. Robin? Yeah, it's essentially the full artistic realization of the concept of the giallo, which is it's a police film with horror elements and horror characters, except the characterization is real and the performances are great and uh, Demi's a subtle, strange film style uh, where he uses these sort of full-on ultra close-ups in a way that you don't notice that it's happening. That's the opposite of the way that Sergio Leone uses them in his Westerns. And so it's the combination of the sanity of the police procedural uh, meeting the uh, breakdown of rationality as represented by Hannibal Lecter, who actually is not actually the main antagonist of the film, but is sort of the uh, creepy advisor character and that based on Thomas's Harris's novel creates a trope, a, a narrative cliche that continues to this day. Uh, there's a obvious ripoff of what if Hannibal Lecter was your dad, a TV show on now, along with a Clarice show, which I've not uh, looked at, mm -hmm. uh, but this uh, really sort of changed the shape of American Jallo from being Friday the 13th to a real uh, horror police uh, mystery. We have been warning people about certain content and the way that uh, the actual main antagonist, Buffalo Bill, is portrayed, uh, is regarded as offensive uh, to uh, trans folk. And so if that's a uh, a deal breaker uh, to you'll want to give it a skip. But it's uh, like a lot of horror films, which bring in elements uh, that are uh, unsavory. Some of those elements become more unsavory over time. But I think that uh, that uh, aspect is dwarfed by the the mastery of the performances and the influence that that and its style have had on subsequent uh, horror and uh, police horror. Yeah, it also gave us the the chatty serial killer in American film. I mean, previously serial killers were sort of mysterious figures and they didn't just babble all the time. Animal Lecter, of course, that's his power is that he talks. And so we get the sort of talky, self-satisfied, introspective serial killer in American film, I think, is if it's not born here, it is certainly blown up very large by Silence of the Lambs. And so now you can't swing a dead cat on a CBS police procedural without hitting a um, uh, direct-to-video rental Hannibal Lecter type. Um, speaking of horror icons, another horror icon is born in 1992 in the film Candyman by Bernard Rose. Uh, the horror icon is the titular Candyman, played by Tony Todd, who is a, a ghost of a black man killed by bees and uh, haunts a specific corner, street corner in Chicago, onto which 
the Cabrini Green housing uh, projects are built. And it is based on a short story by Clive Barker, who based his story on an actual case in uh, Cabrini Green in which because the contractors were uh, cheap and were uh, building public housing and didn't care, they didn't put backs in the mirrors in the bathrooms. And so you could open your bathroom mirror and crawl through into another apartment. And there were actual uh, home invasions going on in Cabrini Green because of this flaw. And uh, Barker thought, this is a terrific bit. I'm going to make it a short story, set it in Liverpool. Director Bernard Rose moves it back to Cabrini Green where it began and uh, makes it a straight-up horror film about race and one in which uh, Virginia Madsen plays a um, a folklorist studying urban legends in Chicago's deepest urban legend, the, the Chicago Housing Projects, and stumbles on the existence of Candyman and bad things happen uh, to good people and uh, fortunately also to her husband, Xander Berkeley, who begins a great career of playing jerks. Uh, in this film, it is really very effective in a lot of ways. It sort of opens out into a mythic quality that I think doesn't work for everybody. This may be a thing where it sort of wobbles a little bit, but then it, it closes up and has a terrific end. So in terms of something that sort of brings the legendary and the mythic down literally to the, to the, the, the gritty real world, I don't think you can do better than Candyman. And it's also, you know, got a killer Philip Glass score. So what's not to love about that? Right. The, the imagery is, uh, is very powerful and fascinating. I think Tony Todd's performance as the, the horror anti-hero, the horror villain, uh, is a very strong and the thing that's memorable about it. Um, I think as you suggest that the film doesn't fully track in some ways and particularly it kind of fails to resolve its contradictions. One of which is, you know, why is the, Black Avenger character killing the other residents of Cabrini Green, but uh, maybe uh, the upcoming remake will uh, upend that. Or maybe it's just that ghosts are mean and kill a lot of people, as we learn from Japan. And speaking of Japan, Robin, I believe you are going to take us into the land of Tetsuo 2. Right. So Tetsuo 2, Body Hammer, uh, like the Evil Dead franchise, the first one is just a rehearsal for the second one. This is by uh, Sunya Zukamoto from 1992. This is an extended a freak out of a film it's operates in the boundary between experimental film and horror. Uh, the plot such as it is, is a young guy is bullied by a gang and that instigates uh, all of his interior mutations uh, and uh, cyborg parts that he's been uh, primed to uh, activate in some inexplicable prior event. And it is a sensory assault, a, uh, a drop into uh, pure weirdness. It is reality horror. It is body horror. It is cyberpunk. And uh, it is uh, absolutely jaw-dropping and and genuinely strange. And as you suggest, it is a precursor uh, to J-horror, which I think we're going to wind up really getting into next segment. And now, this isn't the first time that we've come to a film directed by someone that you've hung out with, uh, but it's the time we're going to talk about now. Uh, so, Ken, give uh, everybody the recommend on Dust Devil by Richard Stanley from 1992. This was, I don't think, I forget if it was Stanley's first film. It was a very early film. It's 1992, as you say. Uh, it is a horror film set in Namibia, uh, in Southwest Africa. Um, it is a sort of stark folklore. It's got folk horror qualities because it is so connected to the legendary of the area. Uh, the uh, titular dust devil is a sort of shape changing figure that may or may not be uh, in 
engaging in a lot of uh, murders. Uh, it's a it's a police procedural that becomes a supernatural thriller, as many things do. But it mostly becomes a crazy visionary dream quest because I think I said Richard Stanley at the beginning of this. It is one of those films that you know. And like I say, it's a police procedural that opens out to be a supernatural horror film, but then opens out further to become a dream quest. And it is a riveting example of sort of one man's vision being put on screen. I was unable to look away from it, even though I think objectively you could say not a ton happens in that third act. But the the, the nature of the sort of exploratory ritual journey uh, that happens in the film uh, reminds you, if you needed to know, that Richard Stanley is, of course, a practicing occultist and uh, a scholar of magic in, in all its respects. There is an inferior cut, which you don't want to see. You want to see the what they call the final cut. The, the longer version uh, that is done from Stanley's, not his 120-minute original shoot, but I think it's 110 minutes. And it restores the parts in the first act that explain what's going on. Uh, so uh, uh, maybe uh, check the long cut if you if you didn't know what was going on. But that I, I'm here to tell you that may not solve all of your, your problems. It may not answer all your questions. I, I think it's um, in that in that level that only horror auteurs seem to do, that it, it produces this sort of... Um, uh, uh, psychotronic experience and it you know it, it it really comes down to live or die do you like richard stanley's brain aesthetic art sense whatever or are you baffled by it and i i, I don't have any questions if you're baffled by it but i think that stanley is a uh, a terrific director with a lot to say and i'm hoping that his new entry into the lovecraft cycle and the new era of easy Hollywood money will let him uh, do some more of that stuff. Cause he certainly didn't forget about it between then and now. And now we're going to end uh, with a film that uh, we both roundly endorse. And that is in the mouth of madness, uh, John Carpenter from 1994, uh, which may well be the most authentically Lovecraftian film, even though it homages, but does not directly draw on uh, the mythos. And so this is a, a film about Sam Neill plays an investigator who is sent to uh, check up on the fate of the horror writer Sutter Kane, is played by Jurgen Prochnow, and winds up following him down the reality horror uh, rabbit hole that Kane has uh, fallen into and is, uh, I think, a marvel of uh, mood and atmosphere and uh, probably the best straight-ahead, serious, evocation, non-ironic version of Lovecraftian a dread that uh, you can see in a film. It is certainly the best one we've seen to date. Uh, it is the climax of what uh, Carpenter has called his apocalypse trilogy. The thing opens it off with a personal apocalypse, Prince of darkness, an underrated middle film in the trilogy is a religious apocalypse. And uh, in the mouth of madness is the Lovecraftian apocalypse, the biggest, bestest apocalypse. And everything you say about it is correct. Robin, it manages to provide so much, uh, familiarity, realism may be the wrong word, but familiarity in the opening uh, bits establishing Sam Neill on his quest to find Sutter Kane, that the reality horror really works and really gels. And I think a, a director less conventional in some ways than Carpenter couldn't have made that switch as convincing and as powerful as he does. And Sam Neill obviously gets a ton of the credit for playing a character has to sort of go through this U-turn bend in the course of the movie. Uh, all the bits work. The in-jokes actually work as horror and as in-jokes, which never happens. There's uh, a great sort of a conspiracy vibe that by itself would have been a great movie, even if it had just been that conspiracy vibe from like the second act. 
but it just keeps getting better. And it does, as you say, recapitulate the properly Lovecraftian reality horror apocalypse in a way that no film has even bothered to do, much less done successfully. It's a, it's a great thing. And Prochnow is, of course, amazing as this sort of Lovecraftian self-image ubermensch uh, at, at the end of it. It's, it's a terrific uh, piece of work. So next week, we're going to move on to the end of the century as uh, things uh, start to turn and get uh, disjunctive and the pipe laid for the rise of J-horror uh, comes right out through your television set Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing The clacking of time gears and the roaring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back in history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, estimable Patreon backer Daniel Gill asks, what would it take to keep France under Angevin control rather than lose it to Philip II under the reign of King John. And it happens just by happenstance. I've been reading up on King John, so I may have more interjections than usual, Ken, into your, into your time adventure. So right. the Angevins, the, the fight in Angevins, starts with Henry II of uh, Will Someone Rid Me of This Turbulent Priest fame? And shortly thereafter, you know that was just rhetorical, right? Uh, yeah. fame. Oh, what I meant rid, I meant, you know, talk to him in, yeah. <laughs> in some way. And he had uh, three uh, sons, uh, two of which uh, succeeded him as uh, king of England. Uh, there's Richard, Richard the Lionheart. Uh, now, Richard, uh, he went off to the Crusades. He famously got uh, hijacked and held prisoner by, what was it, the Holy Roman Emperor? And by Pope? the Duke of Austria. It was Duke not, of Austria. He was not Holy Roman Emperor yet. Duke Leopold of Austria. Held for ransom, famously. He does not know Robin Hood because Robin Hood has not been invented yet. <laughs> <laughs> and even later after that, uh, Richard and John will be made characters in the, in the Robin Hood saga. And then finally, John, who takes over from this is a kind of family where dad lets mom out of prison for Christmas dinner. Uh, mom is Eleanor of Aquitaine. And in large part, uh, she is why they control big chunks of France. They don't uh, have all of France. Uh, they're no known as the Angevins because they're from Anjou or Angiers, as it is anglicized. 
And part of the complication of why this large swath of territory is uh, so hard to defend is that politically, they are kings in England, but they're just lords of a large uh, chunk of France. And if you're can a, a French king who uh, wants to make his bones, uh, you're looking over at Normandy, which has been out of the French king's hand since around 900 or so when a guy named Rollo the Dane took it away. And you're thinking, Normandy, that'll come in handy. That looks strategic. Yes, it's like a dagger pointed at the heart of a different country that I can't think of right now, but maybe England. Yeah. Yes, and in addition to Normandy, which, as you say, is strategic, uh, there's also Anjou, which is super rich, and Aquitaine, uh, which is handy to uh, you know, schools and shopping, as well as a number of other duchies uh, sort of and, and counties sort of scattered around the Vexin, which is sort of the triangly bit between Normandy and Paris is a big point of contention between King Henry and the kings of France, King Louis at that time, Louis the seventh. So yeah, there's basically the situation is that King Henry the second keeps getting himself into trouble uh, with the Pope by, you know, having archbishops murdered. And so in order to get out from under interdict has to go crawl to his nominal feudal superior, King Louis and King Louis always exacts revenge from him in some petty way. Right. And, and, and interdict is when the Pope suspends all religious activity in your country. Yeah. So people can't be buried or married or so it's a big problem. And it's a giant course, deal. Yeah. And uh, the other problem, of course, is that Henry is, I don't know if he's the worst dad in history, but he is a bad dad. <laughs> <laughs> and he takes these three sons, uh, which you've discussed as well as Henry, the young King and Gives them no power, gives them no respect, and then, after having raised them that way, puts them in charge of various parts of his empire. So, John becomes uh, Lord of Ireland, and Richard becomes Duke of Aquitaine. And now that they get their own tax money, they can tell Dad to go stick it. And that indeed happens for the latter, let's say, 20 years of Henry's reign, in which one or another of his sons are either conspiring or in outright rebellion against him. In fact, Henry the Young King... Uh, who is so-called because he his dad outlives him. So when you say he is uh, succeeded by two kings, he is also overlapped by one king, his own son, uh, rebels, then Richard rebels. They're all rebelling. And yes. in order to get money and support to fight these rebels, once more, Henry has to go truckling to Louis VII and give up just this one little tiny castle. And of course, being Henry, he makes sure that the tiny castles he gives up are from his son's rebellious property, which right. endears them to him not. That's it. So I have a favorite bad dad story. Uh. And first of all, those aforementioned Christmas dinners, sometimes there was a war. After. Like, yeah. If you think your family dinners are fried, uh, sometimes they actually led to a literal war. But he calls uh, his son, John, John Lackland. He's known as John Lackland. Who called him that? His dad, Henry II. <laughs> Why did he call him that? Because his dad, Henry II, di didn't give him any uh, land. When did he give him that nickname? When he was two. <laughs> How does he make it up for it? Being La John Lackland says, oh, Ireland, it's yours. Oh, great, dad. So when I go there, I'll be welcomed. Nope. Nope. <laughs> There's a bunch of beardy guys with double-handed axes. Go take over Ireland. Then you won't be John Lackland anymore. Well, right. even when he had land, he was continu He continued to be known as John Lackland. Yes. So uh, this is but one example of Henry II's almost constitutional inability to get out of his own way. <laughs> Remind you of anyone? Uh, anyhow, he uh, goes through this drama 
and some would say finally dies in 1189 and Richard I comes to the throne and Richard I immediately throws off the chains of not being in charge of things and races off to crusade in the Holy Land. And uh, I think he's actually been on crusade before then because the third crusade starts maybe while he's still Duke of Aquitaine. But anyway, he's very excited to go to the Holy Land and fight. He immediately sort of turns the engine of an empire over to other people, rushes off, briefly marries a princess of Navarre in Cyprus on the grounds that when he ever comes back, he'll want Navarre, leaves her in Cyprus, goes and fights a crusade, has a, uh, in another life, we could be friends relationship with Saladin, takes Jerusalem back by diplomacy, not by force of arms, but the diplomacy is backed up by the fact that his force of arms is not unimpressive. He's a good general. He's a skillful politician. He's charismatic. He's popular. He's an ideal king in any, in every way, except for the part where he's off in Palestine instead of in his kingdom and gets kidnapped by Leopold of Habsburg and uh, held to ransom. And uh, when he finally gets back, of course, all of those little castles that the French king was given to shut him up earlier are um, still in the hands of French nobles. And so Richard sort of shrugs and says, well, got to get back to conquer in France, goes to a tiny useless castle named Chalouse and says, I'll start here, gets <laughs> shot in the shoulder by a crossbow and dies of gangrene, I think before his 40th birthday. I mean, right. he's very young. So, so your intervention is, is clear. Yeah. So you tell him to stand out of crossbow range at Chalouse. And when he doesn't do that, you have antibiotics. Exactly. But before that, and speaking of bad dads, one of the great pinnacles of Henry's personal diplomacy, Henry II, was to negotiate the marriage uh, when they were both uh, little kids between his son, Richard, and Alice, the Comtesse of Vexen. Vexen, remember, being that cool triangle part that's right between Normandy and Paris and so very handy. It's a beautiful river. There's all this trade on it. It's a, a generator of cash. She's the daughter of Louis the seventh and he gets her married off to his son at age or promised in marriage, betrothed to his son at age eight. Um, she is brought to England to be brought up in the English court where of course he gets it on with her. He starts having sex with his son's future wife who I hope it didn't start as early as the dates look like it started, but it started pretty early. He would be canceled for that, among other things now, certainly. And so when Richard becomes king, there's a lot of, I'm not sure I can marry Alice because everyone knows my dad was banging her and that's going to make it embarrassing on a lot of levels. Plus, religiously, if the Pope ever says, oh, did we mention that your wife can't be your wife because your dad was messing with her? Uh, that's a thing. Maybe he had a kid with her. We don't know about that. That's a, a rumor. Thank God. But I'm sure it was true because everything awful about Henry II is true. So the other fix on that is to push that marriage through before Henry II gets his grubby mitts on Countess Alice. And if Richard and Alice get married in 1177, Richard was able to have kids. Alice was able to have kids. They have an heir who is not John. Ideally, sometime in 1179, the heir, one hopes, cross fingers. There's where the antibiotics and uh, notes on what his crossbow range may become in handy again, uh, stays out of the civil war that uh, Richard and Henry get into. And even if Richard dies at Chalice in 1199, uh, he's got a son. He's got a son who by then is going to be like uh, 15 or so, or, or certainly old enough to be the, the clear heir. And uh, I think William Marshall is still alive. He can be regent. And uh, you can pass it on to someone who is not John traumatized since two Lackland. And if Richard 
even survives the uh, the siege in 1199, he, of course, is going to wipe the floor with Philip II, who has a lot of great qualities, but amazing military mind, not one of them. So it's it, it's sort of a twofer, but I feel like, first of all, Princess Alice deserves better than to be grubbly pawed by her um, uh, adoptive father. And also, uh, Richard needs a proper heir. Uh, Princess Berengaria uh, did not give him an heir, partially because Richard spent all of his time crusading and being imprisoned instead of having a proper spousal connection with his wife, and possibly because later historians suspect maybe Richard was not a thousand percent into ladies and had other priorities to do. Well, there, there are famously lots of monarchs who fit that description, but still did what yeah, was necessary. Exactly. The, still did their job. Yeah. Laid, laid back and think of England, as we used to say, or in this case, Anjou. So I feel like it is absolutely within the realm of possibility that if we get Richard and Alice married off, that even if Henry II is disgusting, he's disgusting in the case of a properly legitimate marriage that will give Richard a claim to Vexen and indeed a claim to the whole throne of France if he really wants to push it, uh, although the Salic law would get in his, uh, his way there. But certainly it gives him the Vexen, which is uh, very handy for invading Paris and slapping Richard uh, Philip II around. So that's a, a convincing rejoinder to the big structural problem that finally nailed uh, John. And uh, he was becoming a better military leader and better politician by the end of his life when he goes and dies of dysentery. But the problem is, is that uh, once you start to lose your possessions in France, your nobles in England, especially the ones further up north, have no incentive whatsoever to send themselves and their money and their knights to go and get clobbered for France. They couldn't care less about France and that the a kingdom that spans the channel is just inherently difficult to defend if you have a French king who's feeling his oats. Especially if every 50 years or so, one of your heirs to the throne dies in a shipwreck. Right. Uh, so I, I think you've extended uh, the Angevin rule by uh, keeping Richard alive. But there's a problem with that, which is the advantage of John being somewhat feckless and having to make a deal with his northern lords is what leads to the Magna Carta. Exactly. Now, John himself promptly goes on to ignore the Magna Carta and die. But then later kings do follow it. So it does become important later. And I does history need the Magna Carta, Ken? Well, I think that the conventional answer is God, yes, and more so now than ever. But I feel like you could get the Magna Carta out of John because, as you say, he is uh, he's lost the Battle of Bouvines. He's back on his uppers. Uh, the barons can bully him and, and throw him around. I feel like if you leave the Angevins, the Plantagenets, on the throne for long enough, there's going to be a situation where they're in some sort of scrap, and instead of truckling to the King of France or to the Pope, as Henry II had to do twice, maybe they could truckle to their own barons. And I don't see that it's impossible that uh, Richard IV or Henry the uh, different Henry V might have once more had to sort of go and say, uh, guys, really, if you could stop rebelling, that would be great, and I'll sign whatever it takes, just... Come help us uh, defend the Vexen or defend Paris, in this case, against the Burgundians, because if they take Paris under Richard, Burgundy becomes the next big bad, uh, although they have their own uh, logistically hard road to hoe running both Burgundy and the Low Countries. But the Burgundy and the Low Countries is the, well, it's it's where literally all the money that isn't in Italy is in Europe. So fighting them would have been a generational product. And I feel like 
you know, one of the Burgundian uh, dukes would have been smart enough to bribe a younger son of a Plantagenet. So I feel like, you know, let's do it. If we don't get the Magna Carta in a hundred years, we'll go back. We'll reassess. What do you say? Well, that's that's the thing about time. It's it's provisional. Um, so as you point out, the the Angevins later, uh, once they lose Angiers, Anjou, they stop calling themselves the Angevins, and then later on, one of them says, "We're the Plantagenets," and everyone says, "What does that mean?" And uh, either you just change the subject, or or I think the answer to that is lost to history. But uh, what is not lost to history is the fact that this podcast will come around again, uh, possibly not in a time machine, but with another uh, four segments uh, worth of erudition, foolishness, and gaming. So see you next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast as you would the Magna Carta by joining beloved backers. Jack Gulick. Michael Curtis. Scott Stefanski. Craig Maloney. And Bill Durfee. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Comment on your Zoom workplace as our reluctant Phoenix says, oh no, not this again. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>